Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. According to a person familiar with the situation, the British Prime Minister Theresa May calling off a crucial vote in Parliament on whether to approve her Brexit deal. It all changed in the last hour. What a difference 10 minutes makes. The office of Prime Minister May publicly insisting it was going ahead as recently as 6.20 Eastern time. Then... The Prime Minister started a call with her most senior ministers about 30 minutes ago and seemingly everything changed. Neil Shearing joining us now from London, Capital Economics Group's Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Neil. Good morning. Uh, just putting off the inevitable, I guess, which is this vote wasn't going to go through, Neil. It was always unlikely to go through and it's obviously it would be irresponsible of a government to put a vote like this to Parliament, I think, when there's a chance that the Prime Minister might lose by 100 or so votes, uh, particularly over an issue so important. So uh, I think it would, would have been a bigger surprise had this vote have gone ahead. The key question now, of course, is what comes next? Are there any big concessions to this deal? Uh, is it in the withdrawal agreement, the political statement? There's a European Council meeting later this uh, week on Thursday. Um, does that perhaps presage some changes, um, or, um, as the currency markets may seem to be interpreting it, is this just more uncertainty? Well, The Guardian reporting now that the Prime Minister will make a statement to the House of Commons at 3.30 UK time, so that will be 10.30 Eastern time. Neil, what is next for the Prime Minister? Because seemingly this was the deal, according to the Europeans, and there is no other deal. This was the deal, and what's more, was it not? It wasn't only the deal; it was her deal. She was very personal about this. It's, this is my deal, uh, and it's quite clear that Parliament uh, was going to reject this in large numbers. Uh, I think the key question now is: Can she go back to Brussels, and can she, in particular, manage to negotiate some changes to this backstop, which is the the, the kind of arrangements around the Northern Ireland Southern Ireland border, uh, and in particular, uh, the extent to which there might be a, a unilateral vote either by the UK to, to get out of the the, the backstop yeah. works be implemented that's the critical thing um if she can then i think there's a good chance that it could go through on a uh, perhaps a, a, a vote after christmas if she can't um, right. then then the uncertainty continues there's a headline now sharing uh sterling declines to 12651 $1.2651, lowest since june 2017 president trump i believe cares about dollar dynamics does the Prime Minister and other worthies in the United Kingdom, do they care about sterling level if we are, heaven forbid, to retest 22, 23, 24? No, I think there is much less of a, uh, holds much less weight in, in, in the UK discourse, at least. I, so, so long as it doesn't create a big inflationary spike, that's the big question. Does, it, does this feed through to a big spike in inflation? That's when consumers start to feel the squeeze here in the UK. Uh, and just like uh, the US is a consumer-driven economy, so the UK is a consumer-driven economy. Uh, of course, this is happening against the backdrop of lower global oil prices. So that's helping That's helping to kind of work against the inflationary uh, consequences of a, of a weaker pound. Neil, in the summer of 2016, when the vote came through from the British people to leave the European Union, it was a global story. It very quickly became a European story, then very quickly became a UK story. Is this a one-issue country and this issue doesn't really resonate with many other people, many other countries around well, the world? 
it, it's flattering to think it's a one country story at this at this stage i think most of the british public kind of roll their eyes at the whole <laughs> the whole kind of sorry mess of it all uh and it has been a story of a kind of abject political failure on every side in the in the uk uh i think this starts to matter for the uk populace again uh if it starts to hit the economy well, uh, but i think most people are kind of rolling their eyes here in the uk at the I, I, I tried to be a dutiful student over the weekend neil i mean pharaoh's forcing me to watch four English football games. I mean, it was painful, Neil. Well, I hope you managed to watch Fulham. Uh, I, I, actually, they, we lost this weekend to Man United, so less said about that. When was the last time Fulham won? Uh, that is a good question. I mean, uh, two weeks know, ago, we beat Southampton at home. Anne two weeks or, ago, you know. Yeah. One, yeah. one of them, Edward the whatever, the okay, 14th. Okay. Okay. I love how quickly we get off script on this. Yeah. No, but, but, you know, in it all, I read a lot on Brexit, of course, preparing for uh, my trip over there. We'll be in London tomorrow, folks, looking forward to that. Okay. Maybe. Oh, maybe. We'll see. But, but, but Neil, seriously, I, I mean, is that the best thing to do is to do like the British people and just ignore all this mumbo jumbo? I don't There's buy it. So there's so much noise around this at the moment and there's so many different possible outcomes. Um, I think part of the issue is that it's polarised on both sides. So if you care about Brexit, you okay. care about it in one direction or the other. They're, Most of the country, you speak to people in the street. They they're like, yeah, OK, that's the way Pharaoh is, which I get. But, but you know, what we would say in America is this is a constitutional crisis. I don't know if that's the right phrase. But is this a constitutional crisis in the United Kingdom if you're telling me nobody, including Pharaoh, cares about it? I, I think it's potentially a constitutional crisis, and this is part of the issue that we have, is that um, Parliament's rejecting the deal that the executive's put before it. There's now uh, again, there, there's a meaningful vote that we know we're going to have in Parliament. There's also an amendment to that meaningful vote that says if the vote is defeated, then Parliament can essentially instruct the government what to do next. But of course, Parliament can only approve legislation. It can't uh, actually propose it. So we we do get into lots of murky legal territory. I mean, I'm a lowly macroeconomist in all of this, but um, there is we certainly get into to kind of dubious legal grounds and potential for constitutional crisis. I would certainly. draw a distinction between not caring about it and just being exhausted by it. I think most people still That's care about fair, it. They're just totally yeah. exhausted by it. Neil, looking across Europe right now, how politically unstable is the region at the moment? We all saw the incredible pictures coming out of Paris, France over the weekend as well. It looks like Europe's very distracted. Um, never mind dealing with just Brexit. France has its own issues as well. France has its own issues. Italy, of course, has its own issues. Uh, Germany has its issues too. Um, I think this would have been a very different type of crisis for Europe had we had a strong centre around uh, Macron and Merkel. But obviously we don't have that now. Um, and I think that's perhaps part of the power vacuum at the heart of Europe is you know, feeding into this Brexit debacle because mm. had this happened two or three years ago I'm pretty right. sure that Merkel would have got everyone in the room knocked some heads together and we would have ended up in a much better place I mean, I, uh, I but don't, we don't have that now I don't know who in American football gets relegated not that you can re that would be a very cool thing in the national what if we could, you know, it would be great if we could relegate politicians well or, or radio hosts uh, oh. but, uh, but oh. you know oh. I, I'm ready for my relegation was that, I didn't was realize that aimed at me no it was, some, was aimed at myself real, real shade you know, no but but I look at Fulham they're in last place seriously Neil what happens to the world of Fulham if they're thrown out of the Premier League we get we go back to the championship, um, which is, in my humble opinion, the best division in uh, in world football. It's a great division, uh, but it says something about how distracted my life is with Brexit and everything else. That actually, the football, despite being bottom of the Premier League, is a little ray of ray of hope at the moment. Neil, thank you. 
Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I'm sorry we got off topic so quickly. Neil Shearer, yeah, we talked about Brexit. Group chief economist, <laughs> and I wasn't talking about the football. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> John Farrow and Tom Keen with us. And now for a one-hour interview, commercial-free, Mark Chandler. A whole hour. We should. That's how much we got to talk about. How Let's, long have we actually got with We him? got nine minutes, 18 seconds. Make the counting. most of it. Go. Let's go. Okay. Indian rupee, the central bank governor's out. There's domestic politics. There's independence in all. These are the little exogenous EM shocks that just sort of happen, aren't they? Yeah, no, I think you're right. These are not things about Fed tightening. They're not about oil prices. They're, they're little things. And let me say this. Chandler nailed four months ago the importance of watching India continue. So I think that what's happening, we've seen this not only in countries like Hungary, but in India and even in the United States, where the central bank's independence is being challenged by policymakers. And in India, it reached a breaking point. So what happens next? Well, so I think that it's going to take a while in India. They get a new, they'll get a new central bank governor, but it'll take a while to reestablish that independence of the central bank and for, to get credibility in the market. So this will keep some downward pressure on the rupiah. It looks like they've got a serious problem with the financial system and the banks and non-performing loans. And I just wonder how they're going to clean that up and whether that is really the responsibility of the central bank or whether it's the government that's really got to do something here. Well, what we learned in the great financial crisis is there's not much of a difference between the fiscal officials and the central bank. They have to cooperate, work together to resolve a banking crisis. And I think you're right that the depreciation of the rupee, the, uh, the balance of payments deficit, the bad loan situation, right. all, all negatives for India. Is the United Kingdom heading towards emerging market status? And obviously that's a snarky question, but I mean, they're not an emerging market, but come on, there's a set of things we've covered that really move them away from like G2 or G7 quality, isn't it? Yeah, but I wonder if that's been the case for quite a while. I mean, that the UK is not as significant of an economy as say it was 100 years ago, 50 years ago even, and whether it still even has the uh, fiscal fiscal strength really to support its nuclear, especially the, uh, on the uh, submarines and the ships. I think that, yeah. that that's the real danger is that the UK, by leaving the EU, is going to become more marginalized in the world economy. And I think that the people who are in favor of the UK leaving haven't really thought through that the UK is likely to be weaker rather than stronger going forward. Weaker in what sense? Just elaborate on that a little bit more, Mark. Well, if it's part of the EU, it can, be, it can, it can bulk up. It's part of like a force multiplier. But now that's going to be independent, standing on its own, how important is the 60 million people economy that's barely growing, even in good times, uh, that what, is it, what does it really do? What is it really needed for in the global division of labor? Can I just mention the submarine thing? Because everybody's mm. going, what are you talking about? It's an island nation like the Chinese. They're doing the subs. And, John, every time I go to London, it's, it's, it's visible. It's, the subs are always visible. Just uh, This is just a quick look. $41 billion to replace their Vanguard-class submarines. I don't know what they're replacing them with. But, John, uh, Mark rather mentions this. It's a big deal. They're a huge military power still, and I don't think that changes after Brexit, does it? Well, huge military power compared to whom? 
compared to other people in Europe, perhaps, only the French have nuclear weapons. You know, that's an interesting point. The UK does have a permanent uh, seat on the Security Council. That's their claim to fame. And I think that if they were going to stay in the EU, there's already pressure for the EU to have one seat. It should be the UK seat or should be the French seat. And uh, despite the French wanting to cooperate more and have more integration, they're very reluctant to give up that seat on the UN Security Council. Two years after the vote, more than two years after the vote, we still have no idea what this relationship is going to look like, so I find it difficult to really make conclusion as to what and where it leaves the UK. Do you have any idea where this is going, Mark? I wish I could tell you I had a clue where it's going, but I don't think the British know where it's going. You know, they, they voted in a non-binding referendum two years ago. Policymakers say it's going to be binding. And they really didn't agree. They agreed sort of like on our health care. They agreed they didn't like what was existed, but they can't agree on what should be the alternative. And that's where the problem lies. Well, let's talk about where the problem lies in Europe at the moment. There's an ECB meeting later this week. I have to say, President Draghi's in a tough spot. What are you expecting from this news conference well, and sir. the forecast well, this Thursday? Yeah. So a couple things. One is I think Draghi is going to stay to his knitting and say that they're going to finish the asset purchases at the end of this month. The next important thing is what does he say about the economy? And I think what we saw last week was wages are still rising. And this is where he's pinning his optimism. Tighter labor market's going to equal a stronger economy, higher wages, inflationary. But John, I think your observation is brilliant in that he is going to be visible into a Fed that has radically changed in tone. Well, let me ask I mean, you this question. I mean, radical from the last press conference. The base case now, different. just in terms of market pricing, implied by market pricing, is one hike from the Federal Reserve through 2019. Through now, the whole year? Through the whole year. How that's, did you find that as a Bloomberg all, professional all that is, that is all that is priced now for 2019, just the single rate hike. Now, if that's all the Fed can deliver, how is the ECB going to deliver a rate hike? I think that's why the dollar is holding up so well, despite the shift in Fed expectations. Because as the market's adjusting Fed expectations, they've adjusted everybody else's expectations as well. They've taken out the ECB hike for next year. They're removing the Bank of Canada's rate move. They're removing the Bank of England's rate move. I, I think this is why the dollar is able to hold up, despite this shift we've had in Fed expectations. So the well, challenge for Draghi on Thursday, I think, is pretty clear. At a meeting several months ago, and it was a meeting that got your attention, Tom, he managed to pretty much pre-announce the end of quantitative easing, but supplement it with very, very dovish rate guidance. So President Draghi walks away from a meeting, essentially ending QE, but getting expectations for monetary policy incredibly dovish from the market. What is the dovish twist on Thursday? Because I really struggle to see it. I think the dovish twist comes with the forecasts. He's likely to see the staff with the uh, Euro system central banks are likely to cut growth forecasts and inflation forecasts and that will tell the market that not going to raise rates in 2019 maybe not until into 2020. Mark thank you so much Mark Chandler with us. Gary Schilling with us and this is a massive victory lap uh, once again, with the yield 2.85%, a 30-year bond, 3.13%, shilling with a long-term call of a surprise, lower interest rates, has been absolutely dead on. There's no other way to put it. Uh, Gary, congratulations again on the persistency of your call. What is the single thing the rates are going higher people get wrong? Is it a misguess of GDP? Is it a misguess of what? They get wrong that we're in deflationary climate. If you look at the entire post-World War II period and you correlate 
treasury bonds, long-term bonds, with inflation, there's a 60% correlation. Now, that's amazing considering everything else is going on, fiscal policy, what the Fed is doing, wars, peace, et cetera, et cetera. But what it says is if you're right on inflation, you got, you got the lion's share of the forecast on Treasury bonds. And I think we're in a very deflationary world. You, you know, you look what's happening here. Um, you're continually undershooting the Fed's 2% target on inflation. Uh, you see oil falling out of bed, copper, other commodities weak. Uh, economies around the world weakening, but this is a long-term phenomenon, and I think the short-term situation is really verifying it. Just in terms of the undershoot, Gary, to what extent are we undershooting? Because to my knowledge, over the last year or so, we've been in and around the Federal Reserve's <coughs> inflation target. We're kind of there, aren't we? Well, if you look at the last few months, yeah, year over year, you're right, John, but if you look at the last few months, it, it's, been, it's been undershooting, and of course, with the weakness in oil now, uh, it, it will it will be a lot lower now. Of course, you can say you ought to look at the core throughout food and energy, but I eat, I drive a car. Uh, they, they are there. They're more volatile, but they but they certainly are important components. The market is beginning to price this in in quite a drastic way. I would say over the last couple of weeks, we've had a real repricing of inflation expectations. Are you saying there's further to go? That this is the market playing catch up in a world that you think is there? Yeah, I, I think the you know the underlying deflationary forces are, are there. I'm, I first talked about these and wrote a book in 1981 about this. It's, it's been a long-term un, unwinding, but you get a lot of random noise. You get things happening on a daily, weekly, monthly, uh, even quarterly basis, but then you see the underlying uh, trends come up, and it's, it's very cyclical, but it's, I would say it's a, it's a uh, sawtooth pattern along a declining trend of inflation. How do you parse wage inflation there's wages or benefits in your 40-page research note you always link labor into price change is there legitimate wage inflation when you look at wages and benefits think the eci series no there there, there really there really isn't now there are a lot of reasons for that i mean you can you can find any series you want to prove anything but we have a number of things that are going on first and foremost is globalization probably the most important phenomenon on the global scene in the last 30 years. And it really amounts to, among other things, a transfer, massive transfer of manufacturing, other production jobs out of North America and Europe to China and elsewhere in Asia. And that's hugely deflationary. Then you've got other factors like, like uh, the Uberization, if you will, people trading mm-hmm. off uh, freedom of, of hours for lower pay. Um, you've got unionization. You know, you go back, uh, you go back to the early 70s, 25% of the private sector was unionized, now it's 7%, and even the public sector unionization is declining, and that's, and they, they get paid much more. Um, and uh, you, you, look at, you look at what people are doing in terms of the pri- private activity. Uh, a lot of people are really scratching, so you just, you just don't have inflation in, in the <coughs> wage sector. Now the Fed is, Fed is obviously uh, finally coming around the fact right. that that didn't happen, but they were fighting that because they looked at the unemployment rate. But the unemployment rate doesn't, <clears throat> doesn't measure anything. Yeah. It doesn't measure all the people who dropped out who are coming back into the labor force. If you're just joining us, Gary Schilling. I've had Gary Schilling company for years with Merrill Lynch and uh, definitive on believing in a lower interest rate structure. What do you make of the yield curve? It's become a parlor game. My problem is most of the people talking about the yield curve didn't read Fabozzi. And they didn't read the dynamics and the multi-factor 
reality of a yield curve. How should we look at the yield curve, Dr. Schilling? Well, the yield curve is our statistics, and the statistics are every time you get the yield curve inverted, and most people look at the two-year Treasury note versus a 10-year. Do you? When it, you, can look at, you can look at bills. You can look at two to fives. You can look at two to tens. You know, I, I just, I just, I don't have any particular pick, but you have to talk about two to ten because mostly people talk about. It. But the point is that it isn't. That's a statistic. The question is, why does that happen? Mm-hmm. What happens is the Fed is raising rates, and there is a spillover from from uh, Fed funds rate to the to the ten-year uh, yield. But on the post-war av- over the whole post-war period, the average for a hundred basis point increase in Fed funds you get a 44 basis point increase in the 10-year. In other words, you don't get anything like a one-to-one pass-through to begin with. And also, right now, the Fed's been raising rates, and I think that investors are looking out and they're saying, wait a minute, there's, there's, there's more deflation out there. I don't think this economy is that strong. So you're not getting uh, anything like a pass-through on the, on the long end. In other words, it's the reality behind the yield curve. But the, but the point is that every time the yield curve has, in, has, invoted, has inverted since the early 50s, You've had a recession, no exceptions. There is some real debate over the signal, uh, the time horizon that we should really pay attention to. Maybe it's two years for looking at some very specific part of the yield curve. What about the consequences? What are the consequences of a flat yield curve, regardless of what it signals? What are the consequences of it? Well, it's not very good for spread lenders to, be, to begin with. And you see what happened to bank, bank stocks lately. I mean, obviously, you, you simply do not have that opportunity to, to, to borrow short, lend, lend long. Uh, but beyond that, I, I think it's more an in indication of, of what's going on in the economy and investor sentiment, uh, the Fed on the one end and, and uh, bond buyers on the other end. But if we're interested in the signal, <coughs> I think it is important to realize that the Federal Reserve and global central banks <coughs> have deeply depressed the term premium. Uh, and therefore, I would imagine that you would invert earlier than you otherwise would because of that. Yeah, that that certainly is a point, and you know a lot of a lot of people in effect say, well, it's been the flood of of uh, central bank money which has held down long rates, mm. and therefore you get the inversion, and it may not may not mean anything. Right. Uh, but you know you can you can explain your way in or out of any statistics, and I don't put full faith in the yield curve. Uh-huh. I mean, I've got a list of thirteen. Uh, indicators of, of a recession coming. None of them are really definitive, but you know, the stock market selling off, the yield curve close to inversion, consumers very optimistic. Uh, you know, you got a number of things that are very typical at tops, yeah. but there isn't one standing out right now that says we're going to have a recession immediately. Gary Schilling, thank you so much. Hey, Gary Schilling, company. Thanks, great, Gary. Uh, great research as well. Whatever the president wants doesn't seem to materialize. President Donald Trump, of course, uh, looking for a new chief of staff and here to tell us all about the shakeup in the uh, the White House. Cheryl Bolin, Bloomberg government White House reporter. Cheryl, do you have a special scorecard that you (laughs) use to keep track of all the possibilities and perhaps even the betting odds of who gets what job? No, I think I could I could make some money though because the the lists are long and the odds are are crazy. But <laughs> so what's the latest? <laughs> so a lot of drama over the weekend. Um, the the drama really 
started on Saturday when President Trump told reporters that his chief of staff, John Kelly, uh, would be gone by the end of this year but didn't say who would replace him. Um, now, the president, we know, had been in talks with uh, Nick Ayers, who is chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence. But by Sunday afternoon, Ayers had taken himself out of the running by tweet, saying that he, too, would be departing uh, the White House by the end of the year. So Kelly and Ayers are just the latest to leave this administration, um, which has really seen unprecedented turnover. What what are we Uh, doing Monday morning? What's the president doing (laughs) right now? How long is the list? So there is a list right now. There are a lot of rumored replacements. Is Pim Fox Um, on the list? No. Please. (laughs) So one of them uh, that a lot of people are looking at, uh, Representative Mark Meadows, a congressman from North Carolina. He is chairman of the conservative House Freedom Caucus. Um, a longtime uh, rumored uh, Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney is on the list. The U.S. Trade Representative uh, Robert Lighthizer. Um, the Acting Attorney General right now, Matthew Whitaker. Um, there could be others. But really, uh, it's, it's kind of a free-for-all right now. And what's the betting on – well, maybe it's a more of a sure thing, but uh, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. That seems a little more straightforward. Right. Now, that was another change that was announced on Friday. Um, Trump has already announced that he is going to be nominating a State Department spokeswoman, Heather Nauert, uh, to be the next U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Um, If she's confirmed, she would replace Nikki Haley, who said earlier this fall that she would be gone by the end of the year. Um, Now, the one of the challenges is that Nauert doesn't have uh, really any diplomatic or foreign uh, policy experience. <laughs> um, but there is, it's looking like that to sort of compensate that post may be turned into a sub cabinet position. Can you, can you just, we got to run here, but can you, Cheryl, explain what a chief of staff actually does? Really, the biggest thing a chief of staff does is is keep the trains uh, running on time, Um, really controlling the president's time, meetings, who he meets with, what information he sees. Okay, why would this this be any different than General Kelly? Why why would there be a change here? I'm sorry, a change? A change in the process. I mean, the president has his process with his chief of staff, is this going to be a different process with the new chief of staff? It could be, and it really depends on the personality of whoever is put into that position. Um, Reince Priebus, who was, who was uh, mm-hmm. uh, President Trump's first chief of staff, uh, you know, really allowed a lot more free flow of people coming into the Oval yeah. Office. Um, John Kelly was, was brought in to restore a little more discipline. And to keep uh, keep people from just sort of wandering in and out, um, <laughs> restore a little more order. Um, really, the next uh, chief of staff is is going to have a challenge of, of trying to uh, to keep a little control over this president, who obviously likes to set his own schedule, do his own thing. Um, so that he's got to find that balance to to keep the president happy, but also make sure that the the work gets done. Thank you very much for being with us. Excellent. Cheryl Bowen, Bloomberg Government White House reporter. And I think she's going to be busy for the rest of the week, just trying to keep all the 
names and potential roles straight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.